2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Well, thanks, Paul. Thanks, everyone, for keeping that Bible reading open in front of you, whether that's in your own Bible that you brought or if you haven't got one of those in the leaflet where it is printed out for you. In that leaflet, there is also a sermon outline for you on the left-hand side, which will help you follow along. I encourage you to take any notes there or just use it to help you follow you uh, follow along with what we're saying, if that's helpful for you. Uh, why don't I pray, and then we're going to get into God's Word together. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us into the great work of being ambassadors for Jesus, and yet this is nothing we can do in our own strength. We can only do it because of what you have done for us in Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that tonight we might fix our eyes on you and the great reconciliation and transformation you've given us in Jesus. And we pray that that might be the thing that drives us to offer it to others. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been talking quite a bit about ambassadors tonight already, haven't we? And so let me ask you a question. Why would you be an ambassador? Some of you are considering what jobs to get when you finish university. Perhaps some of you are considering a career in the diplomatic corps. Perhaps some of you aspire to one day be ambassadors to a foreign nation. Why would you be an ambassador? Now, of course, an ambassador is just a representative of one nation to another. They speak on behalf of one nation to another nation, encouraging or warning them according to their home government's instructions. Why would you want to be one of these people? 
Now, of course, in some cases, it seems really easy to see why you'd want to be one. I mean, if your host country were rich and safe and allied to yourself, it looks like a pretty cushy job. I've got to say, all of my experience of ambassadors is entirely to do with American television, but if that's anything to go by, being an ambassador to a country like that seems basically just to be black tie cocktail parties and going to classical concerts sitting next to the president. That looks pretty good to me. Pretty easy to be an ambassador in that kind of a country. But what if, the what if the country you were an ambassador in wasn't like that? What if it was poor and unsafe and hostile? What would being an ambassador there be like? Why would you do that job? Well, in today's reading, the Bible describes Christians as ambassadors. We are citizens of one country, heaven, who represent it to another the world in which we currently live. And this is not one of the cushy postings. The world is not inviting us to cocktail parties or to sit next to the president at concerts. No, rather, the world is hostile to the God that we represent and the message we bring. As Paul says in one of his letters, Ephesians, pray for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. He's an ambassador in chains. This is a job that gets him in trouble. So why would we do that kind of job? In the commissioning we just received, those going on the Western plant were called ambassadors for Christ, going to set up a new embassy in the West. Those staying here in the city are ambassadors too, in an embassy in the city. Why would we do that job if it will be hard? What will keep us doing that job when it gets hard? Well, that's exactly what the reading we just had is all about. In it, Paul describes us as ambassadors for Christ, pleading with people on behalf of our King, God, to be reconciled to him. And he says it will be hard. People will think we're out of our mind for doing it and oppose us. But we do it because of who we know God is, a saving God who desperately wants to reconcile people to himself. And that means we can no longer view people in the same way. We now know that everyone we meet is someone who will either go to heaven or to hell. And that shapes our view of ourselves. We can't sit back when we know that, but we want to reach people as ambassadors for Christ. In other words, we have a view of God that shapes our view of people, that shapes our view of ourselves, and so we go. And that's what keeps us going as ambassadors. So let's get into it. If you're following along in the outline, the first point, we have a view of God. As Christians, we have a certain view of God, certain convictions about him. And our foundational conviction about God is that he sent his son Jesus to die for people. Jesus died for us. Verse 14. We're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. You see, God made us and loves us and yet we've rebelled against him as a race and that deserves death. And yet, despite the way human beings have treated God and what we deserve for it, God is still fundamentally for us. 
He sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for our sins in our place so we can be forgiven. As it says in verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took the one who had no sin, Jesus, and made him to be sin for us. Not that he actually made him sinful, but rather that he put all of our sin on Jesus, made him a a target for the punishment of our sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We might become right in God's eyes. And Jesus did all of this willingly with his father. Jesus died for us. And he died for all of us. Look again at verse 14. We are convinced that one died for all. That is, Jesus didn't just die for some of us. He died for all of us. He died for men and women, boys and girls. He died for rich people and for poor people. People who've been to uni and people who haven't been to uni. He died for white people and Indian people and Asian people and African people and Aboriginal people. Greeks, Germans, Italians, Persians, Nigerians, Nepalese, Russians, Chinese, Thais, Mexicans, Colombians, Native Americans, First Nations Australians. He died for all of them. He died for straight people and he died for gay people. Those who are gender confused and those who are gender clear. He died for the people you like at uni and the people you don't. He died for the people who vote the same way you do and those who hate your politics. He died for those who like sport and those who couldn't care less about it, for school bullies and straight A students. Do you get the picture? Everyone you have ever met in your life and everyone you hasn't is someone Jesus died for. Jesus died for all of us. And because he died for all of us, salvation is open to all of us. Verse 14, one last time. One died for all, and therefore all died. Now he's not, of course, saying there that when Jesus died, we all also literally died. I mean, he can't mean that. I mean, we're still here, right? No, rather what he's saying here is that when Jesus died, he died our deaths for us. And because he died for all of us, it's as if we died up there on the cross with Jesus. And therefore, all of us have the option of being forgiven if we want. Our death for our sins has already been died for in Jesus. And so we can be forgiven if we ask for it. A pastor friend back in Tassie of mine uh, tells the story of an old lady who he was helping to prepare for her funeral. And they were sitting down in his office, uh, going through all the songs that she wanted and the Bible readings she wanted read out and the, the details of the cremation. And all of this chat, all of this talking about death began to really get to him. Here he was, sitting across from this lady who was very much alive, talking with her in a very matter-of-fact way about her death. And so mid-conversation, he stopped her and he said, how do you feel talking about all of this? Oh, this, she replied, pointing to the bits of paper they had in front of them, the hymn numbers and the crematorium's details. This... This is just admin. The Lord died my death years ago. You see, she wasn't afraid of death because really 
She died already when Jesus died for her. All the sting of death, the punishment for sin that it would lead to, that had now been taken out of it because Jesus had paid for that when he died. Now, all that had to happen for her was for her body to die and for her to go to heaven and wait for her resurrection. And that option, God says, is open to everyone because one died for all and therefore all died and so can be saved if they want. And that fact results in wonderful things for those who are saved. It results in reconciliation, the restoration of a friendship. Look at verses 18 to 19. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Have you ever had a falling out with a friend, but then been able to patch that up again? I have. Maybe lots of us here have as well. It's an awful feeling, isn't it, when you're doing the falling out, when you're actually at the falling out point. You feel this awful kind of knot or weight in your stomach whenever you think of your friend that you've just lost. And whenever you go somewhere where you think you might accidentally bump into them, you get all nervous when you're driving or walking there, don't you? And you feel this grief at the fact that you used to have this friend, but now all of that's gone. It's an awful thing when you fall out with a friend. But when you patch it up with them again, that's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? I mean, when one of you finally gets on the phone to the other and says, hey, look, I know things have been hard between us, but I'm, just, I'm so sorry that I was a jerk. And they say, I'm really sorry you were a jerk too. And I was kind of a jerk, maybe as well. And I'm sorry, let's catch up for coffee. I mean, that, when that happens, you just feel the weight of the world lift up off your shoulders, don't you? When you've been reconciled to a friend who you were so close to, but it was all ruined and you thought it was lost, but now you're back on track, that's the best feeling in the world. Well, that's how God describes salvation. For those who put their faith in Jesus, it's a reconciliation. You see, when we, when we sinned, we didn't just break the law. No, we hurt a person. You know, we broke a relationship. But now that Jesus has paid for all of that by dying on the cross, we're not just a forgiven sinner, we're a reconciled friend. His aim for us isn't just for us to be forgiven, but friends. That's what you are if you've accepted Jesus' death for you. You are reconciled. And you're also beginning the process of transformation. Look at verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, if you've asked for forgiveness from God, you are now friends. But you are still a messy friend. I mean, our lives have still got lots that needs to change in them. So God promises that when Jesus dies for us, he doesn't just make us his friends, but he also starts transforming us to look more like his son. He starts making our lives less self-focused and more God and other people focused. He transforms us. Now I know that nothing I've said so far is new if you're a Christian here tonight and that is the vast majority of us 
We all know that Christ died for us so we can be reconciled and transformed. I mean, that's Sunday school stuff, right? But, you know, it's the Sunday school stuff that gets you through the big stuff. Because we've got a big job to do. Be ambassadors for Christ. And it won't be easy. People will think we're out of our minds for doing it. And so if you're going to do it, you will need to be better down in the basics, constantly reminding yourself of the fundamentals of what God has done in the world before you set out to do the work in the world that he's given you to do. Why are we church planting? Why are we staying here in the city to keep holding out the message of Jesus to people? Well, it's because we have a view of God, that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, all of us. And as us. So we can be reconciled to him and transformed. And we're convinced that he has many other people in this city that he wants to do exactly the same thing for too. We have a view of God. And we have a view of God that once we know that, shapes our view of people. You see, once you've realized that God sent Jesus to die for us, you can't look at people the same way anymore, can you? Your view of God radically transforms your view of people. So look at there in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. When you know what God is offering people and the, what the alternative will be for them if they don't accept, you can't look at them the same way anymore. I mean, have you ever had one of those moments? Maybe you're on the train. Maybe you're at uni. When it suddenly struck you, everyone sitting around me, their life is just as rich and complicated and full of plans and details as mine is. That their life, even though to me they're just a face, is actually just as important to them as my life is to me. Have you ever had a moment like that? Now, I know it seems like a really obvious thing to say, but actually, I don't think this normally strikes us. That's not how normally we go about life. It's not how I normally go about life. Normally, I think we live our lives where we think of ourselves as basically the, the main character in this big movie, and everyone else is really, well, they're just, they're just cast members to kind of fill out my movie, right? Now... Sure, some of those cast members are more important than others. You know, your husband or your wife or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your kids or your close friends. But the vast majority of the people in this world, we just think of them in our minds as they're just extras. They're just on the periphery. They're bit part players. You know, it never occurs to me that the 38 other people in my train carriage or the hundreds of other people in the mall... Or the people you even just walked past tonight to get to church and only ever saw out of the corner of your eye. All have lives just as detailed and full of hopes and fears and expectations and to-dos as yours. That they're not just cardboard cutouts made to fill out your world, but are actually real flesh and blood people. You know, it's such an obvious and yet extraordinary idea that the moment you first realise that even has a name... It's called sonder. It's a Scandinavian word. 
that describes the first time you realise that everyone else's life is just as real as yours and matters just as much. Well, you know, when you get who God is and what he's done for people, that's our sonder moment. We can no longer view people in the same way anymore. Once you know that Jesus died for everyone and that everyone's life hangs in the balance between heaven and hell, reconciliation and damnation, depending on how they respond to him, you can't look at anyone the same way again. C.S. Lewis, the famous 20th century Christian author, put it this way. He said this. He said, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendours. That's the people in the West. That's why we're going there. That's the people in the city. That's why you're staying here. Now, before we became Christians, we didn't see people this way. We didn't see Jesus that way. But once we saw who Jesus was, that changed. And once we saw what Jesus could do for people who were in him, whose death he died, we saw what people could be. New people. Verse 16, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. In other words, your view of God shapes your view of people. And that must shape our view of ourselves. You see, if this is what God has done, died for people, and this is what people are, people who will either be made into new creations or go to hell, then that has to shape your view of yourself, doesn't it? You can't be a bystander in a life like that with all of this going on around you. You've got to get involved. You've got to tell people what God has done for them. In other words, you've got to be an ambassador. Now, that will mean persuading people of what you believe about God. Verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. And of course, what we're trying to persuade them of is to be reconciled to God. Verse 18, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 
Now, the fact that he says here that we've got to persuade people rather than just tell them indicates they probably won't accept our plea straight away. They'll have doubts and questions. They may not care. They may think you're out of your mind. And so you will have to give reasons, good reasons, persuasive reasons, why they need to be reconciled to God. There'll be hard work in this. But we'll persevere. And we'll persevere because of love. Look at verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. The reason we keep being God's ambassadors in the world, persuading people they need to be reconciled and transformed, is because Jesus loves people and that makes us love people. And so we go. That's why we're going west. Why are we going west? Well, because God has done something amazing. He's died for all people. And those people really, actually, really exist. They really are real and they need reconciling just like you do. And so we've got a job to do. To tell them that and in God's name persuade them to do it. And you know, God promises to be with us every step of the way as we do it. That's why we're going west. That's why many of us are staying here too. For exactly the same reasons. Because God died for all in Jesus. All people need that. And we've been told to tell them. And God promises to be with us every step of the way as we do it. What will help you continue to be an ambassador for Christ even when it gets hard? Because your view of people has been transformed by your view of God and what he's done for them. And that transforms your view of yourself. So let's talk to God now and ask him to help us as we continue to be his ambassadors. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've called us into this work. But gosh, it's daunting. And yet, Father, we know that you are a saving God and our view of you just changes everything. It changes our view of the people around us, the people who serve us in the store, the people who catch the bus with us, the, our neighbours, our very closest friends. Once we know what you have done for them, what you've done for us, we just can't look at anyone the same way. And we can't look at ourselves the same way anymore. We can't be bystanders. And we've got to be ambassadors, holding out the offer of salvation that Jesus offers freely. And yet we know that you will be with us. You want that to happen. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless our plans in the West here in the city, wherever we go, for your glory, in Christ's name, in the power of your spirit. Amen.